This evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel 6. And the last time we saw David finally get to be king over all Israel, conquers Jerusalem, uh, to incorporate it into Israel. And tonight we're going to see some growing pains, some major growing pains regarding the incorrect transportation of the Ark of God. So we'll jump in in verse 1. It says, again, David, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So the first thing I have to do is explain what the Ark of God is, and I think periodically this is a good idea. Uh, it is a type. Uh, it was literally God dwelling with his people. Uh, it, it, was, it was another type of God being that close to us, that the children of Israel were, were wowed, and we are even more amazed because Jesus came uh, to be with us, and in addition to that, he came to give his Holy Spirit to indwell in us. So you see some really neat pictures in the ark, but what was it? Uh, it actually was, a, for lack of a better word, it was a piece of furniture, it was a box, it was overlaid with gold. Uh, there were two, there was like a cover, which was called a mercy seat, and there are two angels, two cherubim, that their wings, they were fashioned with gold, and their wings were outspread, and they touched, or they got really close on the top, and God said that he would be there in the midst of the cherubim. That's what we just read. Uh, his physical presence would reside there. That was his choice. God is, is omnipresent, but he decided to, you know, to have his, part of his physical presence dwell there. So this is important because as we see what happens with the transportation, we don't understand if we just read it and don't understand how important that ark was. What was inside of that box? Well, depending on Israel's history, there would have been the Ten Commandments. There also, depending on what time in history, there would have been the golden pot of manna. And there also would have been Aaron's rod that budded. And everything has significance in that, in that ark of God. Now, how many, I can't help myself, but how many, raise your hand, saw the movie many years ago, Ra Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones, right? Uh, I think the guy who made that movie, it was a secular movie, but when you see how the ark was set up and the power it had, I think somebody did a little bit of homework on that. But um, that to me was a, very interesting. I've seen renditions of it. I've seen uh, artists' uh, ideas of what it would have looked, at, looked like. But we know that this piece of furniture was supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. You know, in the temple there was the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies where there was a curtain separating it, and the priest would go in uh, once a year, make atonement for his sins, uh, but also, you know, he would sprinkle the blood of the animal before the mercy seat, and he would also do it for the sins of the people. So it was very important. I said God's presence was there. And... You know, nobody was supposed to be touching it or moving it. It was a special way it had to be transported. It had these loops, like four loops, and poles would be run through it. And, the, you know, the priestly tribe would, you know, lift it up on their shoulders, the four guys, and they would carry it. But we're going to see that's not how it happens uh, here. Again, a little more history. The uh, ark was in Shalom. Uh, the ark was also taken by the children of Israel into the battle with the Philistines, one of their major battles, they lost. They didn't check with God. So the Philistines, you know, this was what you did back then in warfare. You took the spoils of war. One of the things they did was they stole the ark of God from the children of Israel, took it with them, put it in the temple, and their false gods, the statues. And because of God's presence there, the statue kept falling down, and pieces of their god would break off. And 
It actually says that uh, the Philistines had tumors in their private parts, and some speculate that God plagued them with hemorrhoids. Certainly not a lot of fun. Uh, you could imagine the Philistines weren't happy with it, so they take the ark, and this is, a, this is a crash course in history here. So they take the ark, they put it on a cart with two cows, and they send it back to Israel. goes to Israel, Beth Shemesh, the Israelites, they get a little curious. Again, no, there's not, the reverence for God is not there. They open it up. And uh, God takes a lot of their lives. In Indiana Jones, the bad guys uh, opened up the ark, and you, it was all this cinematography, and um, it killed all the bad guys. You know, so uh, it's, it definitely was there was power there. So what happens is the Beth Shemeshites they say, well, we don't want this, and they send it to the house of Abinadab, and this is where we come to. So David wants to take the ark out of the house of Abinadab, bring it to Jerusalem, which he conquered and centralize the spiritual things, very good intentions. Um, one calculation is that uh, as much as or as long as 70 years, the ark of God didn't have a permanent home. It kept getting shuffled from place to place. And I think this is sad because, again, this is where God physically dwelt. Um, the ark of God with, was met with apathy. It was met with, in some instances, contempt. Children of Israel were worshiping idols. Uh, it was forgotten at times. So the children of Israel had a really poor attitude towards this ark. And, you know, I think that we can look at, in some ways, the Christian culture today. We serve the living God, right? We go through God's word. Jesus said in, in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my words. If you don't love me, you won't. So he puts everybody in two camps. It's either this or it's this. Um, sometimes in the Christian culture, it's, they want the, the culture, but they don't want the Christ part. Uh, so I, I think that when we look at the Old Testament, we better be careful not to judge them, because there's a lot of problems with the church today with believers, and we're supposed to be dwelled with the Holy Spirit, indwelled, excuse me. So a lot of people looking for experience, emotional. Uh, really what we should be looking for is an experience and a relationship with God. Verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. So they really had a rock and worship team. You know, they had all these diverse equipment. They were excited. You had all these choice men of Israel. Uh, so there's a lot going on right now. The only problem is they didn't move it according to what God's, how God said they should move it. Uh, to make it even worse, they transported it like the pagans did. Uh, so if you go back to 1 Samuel 6, you'll see that it was the Philistines who put the ark on a new cart. And what did the children of Israel do? They copied them. So this is just a recipe for disaster. Two problems we can look at. Number one is ignorance of God's commands, or in the same token, being unconcerned about God's commands, or his ways, or his preferences. And I'm going to read an article. And this isn't castigating, this isn't an assault, it's just basically a factual study that was done. In ChristianPost.com, September 12, 2012, it says, The Bible, the biblical literacy of teenage believers. A youth ministry researcher, Chap Clark, says, I'm convinced that the single most important area 
where we've lost ground with kids is in our commitment and ability to ground them in God's word. As a result, he says, the church today, including both the adult and teenage generations, is in an era of rampant biblical illiteracy. Duffy Robbins takes this one step further when he says, our young people have become incapable of theological thinking because they don't have any theology to think about. And as Paul warns, this leaves us as infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, Ephesians 4.14. So I thought that was a fascinating article. As I, was, I got the Brian call, that's where it came from. I started doing the study. I'm like, you know, I could work that in there. But so what's going to happen in the next successive generations? Are we teaching the teens? You know, I mean, i got to be honest with you. After service, I go out into the, the lobby, and usually the youth ministry is, has already finished, and all the teens are up in the lobby. I go to them personally and shake their hands and try to talk to them a little bit uh, because it's important, because they're going to be the future missionaries, pastors, worship leaders, etc. So this is a, a, a scary article, really, because you know, if you don't know your doctrine, if you don't know your word, then basically church just becomes a bunch of opinions, which it's starting to look like uh, in the modern church. Uh, so this is, this is what we're dealing with. And what ramifications will that ignorance, that illiteracy have on the next generation of church leaders? Two, they allowed paganism to mix with the things of God. And I have to say, there's a, you know, again, in, in our time, there's a lot of new carts out there. Something new, it's something fancy, it is pizzazz. Unfortunately, many of it is rooted in antagonism to God's word. So has anything really changed in several thousand years? Right? What's coming out of America's pulpits? Maybe some pop psychology and how we have to love ourselves more or uh, these, these wacky ideas that we're all basically good inside. Completely antagonistic to the Bible. Again, from America's pulpits. Politics. Seeker friendliness. Well, you know, let's just get the numbers and the tithes in, and we'll worry about growing them on the, on the home groups. I've heard that philosophy. So you could be sitting next to a polytheist who takes Jesus and puts it on, on his shelf with all his other little gods, and he's quite comfortable in that church. There's nothing to convict him on a Sunday morning. Is that really what we need to be doing? Or do we use the word as a sword to convict, to cut where it needs to cut? Right? So this is what's going on. Verse 6. And when they came to Nishan's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Wow, sobering. Some might even read this and say, harsh. Right? God's unfair. Well, if that's what we're reading, we're reading it with the wrong interpretation. You know, Chuck Smith often said that if you're uh, interpreting the Bible and you come to an interpretation that's really bizarre, you have the wrong interpretation. It's not what the Bible says. But God is a holy God. He has a perfect standard. And I think what this does is it showed them and it shows us our need for a Savior. Even Job cried out when he was going through this ordeal. You know, he cried out for a Savior, not even knowing the Lord Jesus yet. So I think what happens is when we read something like this, we say, well, then who can get close to God? How do I do it? It seems impossible. All he was trying to do is study the card. Again, that's a, uh, it, it drives a hunger in our hearts for somebody, a mediator, to somebody to stand in the gap between us and God. And that 
came in the form of Jesus Christ. So David's intentions were good, but he went around it the wrong way, and it had its consequences. I want to jump to 1 Peter 4.17, just one verse, or maybe I'll read two. But he says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? And I read this because judgment, whether it's the Old Testament, a different dispensation, right? We're in a new dispensation. We are in the age of grace. However, even in the age of grace, in the book of Acts, God struck down Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that. That's the New Testament. So what makes us think that this can't happen again? As a police officer for 21 years, I can say that if you're ignorant of man's law, there's no excuse. You still get convicted by that law that you violated. And I'll say this, ignorance of God's law is no excuse either. What I love about the Lord, and, and you look at the, even the Old Testament versus the New Testament, is the, you have your sins of commission, you know, killing, stealing, lying about somebody, disrespecting your mother and father. But what's also neat is that, um, well, actually it's not neat, it's actually quite frightening, is that we have sins of omission too, things that God expects us to do, but that we don't do. So it's something that we fail to do. And there were sacrifices for both, uh, sacrifices for sins of commission and sacrifices for sins of omission. And we see some omission here, but the good news is that Jesus came so that all of those sins could be forgiven, regardless. Some we forgot, some we didn't unintentionally offended God. It's all covered under the blood of the Lord. So that's, I like that. Another interesting point is all the fanfare surrounding this uh, celebration. Well, David has crowds, he has choice men, he has music, he has leadership, and it all came crashing down before it even started. And I look at the same thing in America. Americans have the idea that bigger is better. Supersize me, all you can eat, you know. You make a million, you should make two million. And unfortunately, that gets its way into the church too. Big, 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 you know. Um, pizzazz, you gotta, you gotta, it's got to be an experience. However, big is not always better. I've read enough studies, even on evangelistic crusades, and you can tell people about Jesus and evangelize, but if nobody's following up with them, the statistics are in the single digit of those who still walk with the Lord after a few years. So what, what we find is that personal discipleship is more effective than big. One-on-one, that's what Jesus did. He had his concentric waves of of, of his small groups. He had the three, then he had the 12, then he had the 70. And then the Bible says there might even been way more than that. So he might have had uh, well over 100 disciples. So big, big isn't always better. God is serious about his holiness and he will not compromise, period. It's not like uh, the father is up there saying to the son, you know, times are changing, son, and uh, we've got to get with the program. Look at those trends out there. We've got to reach those people. God's word is pure. And the the thing that saddens me the most is that how men in ecclesiastical leadership try to bend with the winds of change. Because I'll tell you, why are people not attracted to church? Not because of Jesus. You give the people Jesus, they will be naturally attracted to him. It's all the other junk that comes with it. Verse 8. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of that place Perez Uzzah, or outburst against Uzzah, to this day. 
David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. It's kind of funny, David was angry. Now, we've never been angry at the Lord, have we? We've never experienced something where our emotions got the best of us. Let's be honest, you know? If I ever do that, I come to my senses quickly because he's perfect. He's that constant. I enjoy math. You know, you, you have your variables. Everybody here is a variable. God is that pie. He's that 3.14. He's that constant that never changes. We're the ones that flake out and move back and forth. And we're going to see David go through a series of emotions here. And the first one is anger. Almost as to say, God, I did this for you. Why didn't you bless it? I think it's simple. Uh, And we can look at this in our own lives. If it isn't being blessed, maybe God's not in it. If we're really doing it for God and it is with the right motives, God will bless it. It's that simple. And in verse 9, we see that uh, David was afraid of the Lord that day. So David goes from anger to fear, to fear. And he says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Well, the answer is the way he wants it to. (laughs) It was right there in the word. And and there's good news because we'll see everything starts to change. But, you know, we, we have to look at things the same way. Uh, whatever we do, if we think we're doing something for God, if we think we're trying to bless him, if we're not doing it according to his word, then it's, it's really fruitless, much like this endeavor. So David cancels his plans for momentarily. He, he puts it on, this project on halt. He uh, parks the ark of God with Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and guess what? This man's household is blessed. Probably no different than Abinadab. Verse 12. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. All right. David was paying attention. I mean, my son is 13 and, you know, we have these discussions about prayer and and listening to God. And he goes, and I, I sat there in my room and I listened, I didn't hear anything. You know, but I try to explain to him, you know, this is a relationship. It comes with prayer. It comes with the word. And sometimes it comes after prayer just to be still and listen to hear what he has to say. You know, for a 13 year old, it can be a little difficult, but I'm trying to explain to him how, you know, to listen for God, to listen for the blessings, to listen for God, to show us things. Very important. Now, sometimes we're in such a hurry that we forget to stop and listen to God. And you know what happens? We get ahead of him. I've been there. I've gotten ahead of them. But everybody's expecting me to do this. But, you know, every, there's a backlog. Well, okay, God, hurry it up. No. It's in his timing. It's in his timing. We also need to pay attention to stop and to listen. Right? As, as if God was saying to David, I really want to bless you, but it can't be done in your disobedience. It's got to be done the right way, no matter how good your intentions are, David. So David's anger and fear now gives way to gladness. This is an emotional roller coaster for him. And like I said before, God is a constant, and it's up to us to catch up with him. Sometimes we run ahead of him. Sometimes we lag behind him. 
And the key is, I shouldn't say the trick is, but to really have a fruitful walk is to, to be parallel with him, to just always be right at his side, you know, for him to lead us and for him to pick us up when we, when we lag behind. 13. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now, there's a difference here. There's a difference here. I really think, and listen, when I interject my opinion, take it with a grain of salt. I mean, if I tell you that this is what the Bible says and, and it can be proven, let's go with that. When I give you my opinion, you know, it's conjecture. But I think that the first time there was a lot of fanfare. There was a lot of pomp, you know, there was a lot of ceremony. But I believe this, that this time that it was done, everybody was joyous. It was a different type of joy, right? Jesus wants, as he says in John 14, you know, about following his word and 15, that uh, the joy may remain in us, this fruit of the Spirit. And I believe this was totally different. I believe the Holy Spirit was in this, and it was very exciting. Now, 1 Chronicles 15, I always try to do this when I'm covering a book. I look at any parallel scripture. If you read 1 Chronicles 15, sometimes you know, it's written from a different perspective. It's the same word, but they'll give a little bit more detail in some of these situations. But David admits fault, and he realizes, he admits not consulting the Lord and vows to do it right this time. And you know what we find? That God is a merciful God. God is the God of second chances. And I think if we've lived long enough as Christians, we know and we've experienced it. Second chances, you know, get out the tally for me and put the, the, the cross, you know, that horizontal piece, 5, 10, 15. I mean, he's just such a merciful God. He's, he loves us so much. We mess up. We, we admit that we messed up. It's called repentance. We change direction. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. And we move forward. And, and this is what happens here. Very exciting. So David is, is dancing, and I, I have to caution uh, the reader here because I've seen it with this scripture and I've seen a lot of other scriptures where people will take liberties with God's word, that he was dancing and he was almost naked, and I don't buy that. A linen, a linen ephod was a very uh, strong piece of material. Uh, he also may have had his kingly garments under that, so let's not read into the scripture what's not there. Unfortunately, when I go through certain passages, I've heard things for so long that I have to fix that, okay? I believe that David did this with his heart. I believe that um, he gave it all that he had. I believe he, he might not have even been a good dancer. I certainly am not. But he gave everything he had. It came out of his heart, the sacrifices, the emotionalism, and uh, he's just praising the Lord. And I know all of us here have been there before. You know, we just praise God and we see what he's doing and it's just so exciting, and it's just from the Spirit. It's just like a high that can't be uh, duplicated. 16. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now she, again, King Saul's deceased. Uh, this is his daughter, and... Saul just played games with David, I'll let you marry her, and then he took her away, and this kind of went back and forth. And then after King Saul was dead, David called for her 
Now she's with somebody else now, and he brings her back. We, we, we kind of covered that. So here she despises what she considers a public spectacle in her eyes. 17. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. So he's just, you know, he's just so blessed by this. And I wonder sometimes if he was training the people to, um, you know, again, speculation. Uh, this, is, this is such a great time. You know, this is, you take this out of, the, out of the treasury. Just to kind of train them in the right way. This is a good thing. There's a big celebration going on. 20. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of the servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Did you ever just, in your heart of hearts, just praise the Lord? And, you know, I've been there, and it's just, Maybe it's even out of my character because I'm just so excited for God. You know, you get gleeful and all of a sudden enter maybe one of your carnal Christian friends or somebody that mistakes what you're doing for something else and kind of tries to put a wet blanket on it, give you a hard time, steal your joy, make you feel silly. This is always a factor when it comes to carnal believers, you know, uh, this is a certain, and we're going to talk about John 15 in a few Sundays uh, from now, but there's a certain type of person who just wants things a certain way, and they can't recognize a work of the Spirit. They can't. And anytime they see a work of the Spirit, they become judgmental. Right? So the Bible says not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever in marriage for one of these very reasons, because one will be excited and on fire for the Lord, the other one... Well, may dampen. Now, is it possible the other spouse could, could come to faith? I'm going to tell you, this is what Paul says, and I agree with him. He's got it from the Lord. It's not a good idea to enter into a, a marriage when one is a, a believer and one's not. Um, we can look at this, and I, I know people who've been in business, uh, partnerships in the world, and they're a strong believer, and their partner is, has good business sense, but they're not a believer. And there's a problem with how the money is to be spent and maybe tax loopholes and things like that. So unequally yoked is a problem, even in our friendships. I can tell you I've had friendships where I had believers who were friends who would drag me down. They would try to bring me into a state of carnality, and God eventually, he put the sword to it. He stopped it. Why? Because he loved me. So being unequally yoked is, uh, is uh, an important thing we need to look at. Uh, and this woman was not, from everything that I've read, a spirit-filled woman, and he's married to her. Unfortunately, he's married to a few other people. That's a, that's a whole other story that we spoke about before. But this is another example of how Satan will take our mountaintop experience and try to bring us down into the valley. You know, uh, I would tell you that whether it's a, a men's retreat or a pastor's conference, I, you know, I, now I expect it, but you know, I would come home and there would be some pressing issue at work or a pressing issue uh, in, in some respect 
that really tried to kind of put a damper on it, you know. So now that when I go to a, a men's conference or a pastor's conference, I already know when I get home there's something waiting for me, and I don't mean my wife. I mean there's some problem waiting for me when I come back to reality in the world that I can't let it drag me down. As a matter of fact, the last East Coast pastor's conference was amazing. I mean, all the speakers were fantastic. We actually got... Um, a bunch of recordings from it, but it really spoke to situations I know with the other pastors in our church. And it's like, these guys were from California and they were speaking directly to us. So, you know, we're all excited driving home and you know, I just think, okay, we'll, we'll see what happens, what's, what's waiting for me when I, I get back to New Jersey. But we'll move on from that. Uh, I learned now not to get discouraged. Verse 21. So David said to Michelle, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, for them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of death. And you could read into that. But I think at this point... um, David and Michelle need marriage counseling. I think uh, they need to go to Three Strands with Pastor Paul. Maybe they should listen to Dr. Egrick's uh, book on love and respect. Uh, so there's some problems in the relationship here. And obviously, Michelle had no kids. Uh, you know, probably the intimacy after that point was non-existent. And uh, David had children raised up from other wives. You know, I got to tell you, part of me feels sorry for her when I read this. But... If you really look at a, a character profile of Michelle's life, she was, a, she was just like her dad. She was a manipulator. You know, she had some serious spiritual flaws, and you know, um, it, it catches up with her in the end. But as we close, you know, we can give money, we can write checks, we can volunteer our time, we can uh, do a lot of things. But if what we do is not according to God's word and God's will, we're just wasting our time. And I think that we can look at this historical event of several thousand years ago and say, oh, that's fanciful. I, I learned something about you know, the ark of God and what it might have looked at like. But I don't think that is the parabe- parallel we're supposed to be striking here. Uh, I believe that uh, you know, there's many today that say that I have my own relationship with God. And uh, I probably said that before I was a believer. But... We can be as fruitless as David's first time if it's all about how we want to bless God. Now, we wouldn't do that in a marriage, would we? You know, I've used the example, if I bring my wife flowers and she said, they're nice, but the garbage is overflowing, your son's giving me a hard time and something's falling off the roof, and next day I bring her flowers again and this goes on for three or four days, she's going to be upset with me. And I'm going to say, well, I'm bringing you flowers. I know, but there's other things that are pressing that I need taken care of. So the parallel I'm trying to make is that God wants certain things from us. And it's so easy to give him religion. It's so easy to give him flowers. It's so easy to memorize a prayer or say something before we go to bed. But that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for our heart. He's looking for us to follow his word. Okay? And Chuck Smith's vision of simplicity to going back to God's word was so revolutionary several decades ago and it's kind of funny because everybody looked at him and said duh big deal you're going to read God's word from the pulpit because churches had gone so far with fanfare 
they, they were forgetting God's word. And I got to tell you, it makes my job. People say, oh, Pastor Joe, that was a great message. I'm like, I'm just reading God's word. I mean, it makes me look good because I'm using good material, right? So God's word is revolutionary. Anyway, the good news is that David recovered. He got back to be obedient, being obedient to the word. And again, we're covering this in John 14 and 15. Jesus says over and over again, if you love me, you'll follow my word. So as we leave here this evening, I hope, I hope I've kept you up. Um, if you're coming back from work and you know, trying to keep you guys awake. But as we go forth this week, that we would take God's word into our heart and that whatever we do, that we make sure it's according to his will and his word and not according to what we, what we want to do. Let's pray.